listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War Part 2 The Philippines, the USA, War, Colonialism, and the Martial Arts Last time, I gave you a brief sketch of two rebellions in the late 19th century by the inhabitants of two colonies of Spain, one being the Philippines and the other being Cuba and how the latter led directly to war being declared between the U.S. and Spain in 1898. Now, three of the four wars that I'm describing in this miniseries are probably wars that you haven't heard of before. But I just bet that most of you learned at least a little bit about the Spanish-American War in history class. I also just bet that one of the few things that you may remember from it is future President Theodore Roosevelt commanding his Rough Riders in a valiant cavalry charge up San Juan Hill, almost single-handedly defeating the Spaniards. Yeah, well, turns out that's bullshit. It's wrong in several ways, and I'll get around to telling you all about it. But first, once war was declared against Spain, the U.S. Navy wasted little time. A blockade was established around the island of Cuba, and Commodore George Dewey and the U.S. Asiatic Fleet sailed from Hong Kong towards the Philippines. Once there, he sailed into Manila Bay and engaged the Spanish fleet. During a crisis seven years earlier in 1891, a crisis that drew an American squadron of ships to Chile, the administration of President Benjamin Harrison experienced the disturbing realization that the U.S. Navy just might be more antiquated, less powerful, and smaller than the Chilean Navy. It was determined that this state of affairs needed to be remedied, which led to the largest peacetime expansion of naval power in American history. The number of ships grew larger, and more importantly, the new ships were modern, with up-to-date armor and armaments. While the Spanish fleet in Manila could not be described as antiquated, the state of the art of the technology of naval warfare was changing at a rate that was unprecedented in history. Compared to the brand spanking new American fleet, the Spanish one was obsolete. The result was that the United States Asiatic fleet destroyed the Spanish fleet. The Spaniards suffered 371 casualties with 77 sailors killed. The only death in the American fleet was from a heart attack, probably brought on by the tropical heat. It was evident that the Spanish commander, realizing that victory was out of the question, gave just enough resistance to preserve honor, but also managed his side of the battle in such a way as to keep casualties lower. For example, running ships aground so that the sailors could scramble to the land without the danger of drowning. 
but the victorious American fleet did not quite have complete control of Manila Harbor. There were fleets there from other navies as well, including the French, British, Japanese, and Germans. They were hovering like vultures, looking to pick at the carcass of the Spanish Empire. Serious trouble nearly cropped up between the victorious American fleet and the Germans, when the German fleet exhibited some pretty aggressive behavior, but the Americans made it clear that they were willing to fight if necessary, and the Germans backed off. None of the other fleets made significant trouble after that. The Americans had won the day. But the USA had no ground troops in the area, and it would be two months before any would arrive. So, upon completion of the sinking of the Spanish fleet, Commodore Dewey dispatched a cutter to Hong Kong to fetch Emilio Aguinaldo, the exiled leader of the aborted Filipino rebellion, back to his homeland. Dewey's purpose in doing this was to get the Filipinos busy fighting the Spanish again, in order to keep them busy until American ground troops arrived. Back in America, Theodore Roosevelt, upon hearing of the defeat of the Spanish fleet, promptly resigned as Assistant Secretary of the Navy and began the process of rounding up a volunteer cavalry unit for the war in Cuba. The U.S. Army was also, of course, involved in the process of gathering troops for an invasion. Now we come to a fascinating part of the story. I knew that African-American soldiers served in the Philippine-American War, which we will discuss later. But I had never heard of their role in the Cuban theater of the Spanish-American War. When I'm done telling you, I think you'll agree that their story is one that should have been told a long time ago. The year 1898 was smack in the middle of the worst part of the Jim Crow system of American apartheid in the South. For that matter, being black in the North at this time was no picnic either. There weren't a lot of prospects for young black men when it came to upwardly mobile career paths. Just getting a steady job was about all you might hope for, and that job would almost surely involve some sort of demeaning treatment while also engaging in back-breaking manual labor for low wages and long hours. In other words, a very small step removed from the slavery that had been their lot a mere 33 years before. One of the better options, from among a list of bad options for a young black man in those days in America, was to join the military. It's not that there wasn't discrimination in the military. Of, of course, it was rampant there as well. But enemy bullets don't discriminate, and the government was always looking for young men willing to risk their lives in combat for minimal pay. Three square meals a day, plenty of fresh air, and a chance to test and display your manhood sounded pretty good compared to digging ditches. African-American army units were segregated, that is, the only white soldiers in those units were the officers that commanded them. With a tiny number of exceptions, the military was not yet ready to allow black men to become officers. At the end of the Civil War, one-tenth of all the troops in the United States were black. But most of these units, like most of the white units, were disbanded in the military downsizing that is normal in peacetime. There was, however, still a need for competent 
professional soldiers. The unfortunate wars against the Native Americans were still going on in the West, and who knew what military needs might arise in the future? To meet these needs, new military units were formed, among them four African-American regiments, two of cavalry, the 9th and 10th, and two of infantry, the 24th and 25th. Before long, these units came to be known as Buffalo Soldiers. Now there's more than one story about where this name comes from, but they all involve Native Americans comparing the black federal troops to buffalo. They fought like enraged bull buffalo, continuing to do so even when their bodies were shot full of arrows. Or other stories said it was because their hair was reminiscent of a buffalo's fur. These hard men endured the tough conditions of the western prairie, deserts, and mountains, and served with distinction and bravery. When you picture a scene from the Old West in which the cavalry comes charging to the rescue, in reality, at least 10% of the time, those boys in blue were black. Their skill and bravery in battle quickly became legendary. With the onset of war with Spain, likely to take place in the Caribbean and the Philippines, the United States was going to need tough men who could endure difficult conditions in the tropical heat of Cuba and the Philippines. The Buffalo soldiers fit the bill perfectly. There weren't enough of them to supply all the needed manpower, but all of them were called up to serve, first in Cuba. In addition to the regular army units, black and white, volunteers went to Cuba as well. And Teddy Roosevelt's cavalry unit was one of them. He had spent a great deal of his life out west, palling around with manly men like cowboys, buffalo hunters, and prize fighters. For his cavalry regiment, he used his connections to seek out willing men who could ride and shoot well. In addition, he invited some Ivy League college athletes that he knew and admired, even some members of his former college glee club, with the thoughts of training them up to swell the ranks. Roosevelt himself would not be in command. That honor would fall to regular Army General Leonard Wood, with Roosevelt being second in command. Wood was a doctor who had been the personal physician to two presidents which was where he met Roosevelt. The regiment was officially called the 1st Volunteer Cavalry, but eventually came to be more well-known by its unofficial name, the Rough Riders. Meanwhile, the Buffalo soldiers were being transported by rail from their posts in the West to staging areas for shipment to Cuba. As they went through the Midwest and the North, they were greeted by cheering crowds. But when the trains crossed the Mason-Dixon line into the south, the receptions became markedly different. If they were lucky, it was simply silence. If they were unlucky, it was overt hostility and occasional violence. They eventually found themselves at the staging port of Tampa, Florida, where they would remain for a number of weeks. Now the sight of thousands of armed African-American men in their midst was new and very disconcerting for some of the people of Tampa. The local newspaper, the Tampa Morning Tribune, 
expressed the feelings of many of them. Quote, the colored infantrymen stationed in Tampa and vicinity have made themselves very offensive to the people of the city. The men insist on being treated as white men are treated. Unquote. Tensions between the locals and the Buffalo soldiers soon grew to a fever pitch. The soldiers had to have thick skins to tolerate the more petty displays of bigotry, while keeping a constant watch for more dangerous provocations from racist residents. One incident occurred when a group of Buffalo soldiers walked into a drugstore to buy some soft drinks. The store owner told them to go buy their soda somewhere else, but in much coarser language, that he refused to serve them. The black soldiers were rightfully angered by this, and an argument ensued. Another local white man named Abe Collins got involved and produced two pistols, swearing that if the soldiers didn't leave immediately, he would string them up. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's slang for killing someone by hanging them. Now, this was a particularly stupid thing to say. This was in the 1890s, the peak period of lynchings of black people, especially of black men, in America. There were at least 212 lynchings in Florida in the years after the Civil War a larger number per capita than in any other state. White supremacists were used to using the threat of such violence to intimidate black people into behaving in a way that fit their narrative of how a race that they viewed as obviously inferior should behave in the presence of their betters. But these black men were steely-eyed combat veterans. They had faced the likes of Geronimo and his Apache warriors in battle. It's statistically likely that each and every one of them had a relative, a friend, or a relative of a friend who had been lynched. And they too, like Abe Collins, were armed. They drew their own weapons, and soon a firefight ensued. Abe Collins did not survive. Such incidents were sadly all too common in the weeks that the Buffalo soldiers staged and trained in Tampa, and the local press coverage made things worse, printing racist screeds complaining that, for example, quote, respectable white citizens need to be protected from these black outlaws, unquote. All of this racial tension boiled over on the day before the soldiers were scheduled to ship out for Cuba. A white volunteer soldier from Ohio thought it would be funny to seize a two-year-old black child from its mother, dangle the little boy upside down from one hand while spanking it with the other. Upping the ante, his white soldier buddies practiced their marksmanship by seeing how close they could shoot their pistols at the dangling, screaming toddler as his restrained mother watched and screamed helplessly. Some of the shots came so close that they put holes in the little boy's clothes. This was the last straw. Many of the black soldiers of the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments had endured all they were willing to. They responded with violence, and the violence grew out of control. Rioting spread through Tampa in a fury of destruction. The army sent troops in to quell the rioting. The government claimed that no one was killed, but African-American newspapers reported that, quote, 
the streets of Tampa ran red with Negro blood. Unquote. In any case, the Buffalo soldiers shipped out the next day. Well, sort of. But that's a story that we'll have to wait for next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>